Good morning. Thank you for that intro, Chris. That was fantastic. There you are. Lost you in the crowd. Okay. Yeah, that is a great intro to our text, so let's open up to it. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 11 through 14. This will be a two-part sermon, so we won't conclude everything here today. If you uh, do not have a Bible, we would encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seat around you. Turn to page 948. That'll bring you to, to our text this morning. And before we, we jump into this text, what I want to do is remind you of what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is really uh, the beginning of this section now that we find ourselves in where, where Paul begins to apply all the, all the truths that we've learned uh, from Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11. And then when we started this section, it was in chapter 12, verse 1, and this is how Paul began. He said this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You can flip back there if you'd like. It's just a chapter before. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or you might say reasonable service, reasonable service. And if you remember, I explained to you that that's what, uh, that would be a better interpretation of spiritual worship. It is your reasonable service. And I pointed out that when we looked at that passage or that verse, that another translation of the Bible uh, puts the first part of verse 1 this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So here, at the beginning of chapter 12, the beginning of this section that we now find ourselves in, extending all the way to the end of Romans, Paul says, this is how he starts it off, it is in view of God's mercy that Paul urges us as Christians to present our very bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. That is, to commit our lives to him without reservation. This mercy, beloved, that Paul refers to in Romans 12 is is God's mercy to us as inexcusable and undeserving or as undeserving sinners in giving his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. That's the mercy that Paul is referring to. It's the mercy that he has described in the first 11 chapters of Romans. It is in light of this great mercy, then, that is entirely fitting for us to relinquish ourselves fully to God. It's just kind of just going back. I'm just, this is like review. It's what I talked about in Romans 12.1, okay? So it is important for us, brothers and sisters, to, and we've spoken about this many times, to repeatedly in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, to look back to the cross, right? And be reminded again and again by it of the wonderful mercy of God that has been extended to us as believers and thereby be continually moved to give ourselves, to give our very lives to and for God. Are you with me? 
But not only are we to be looking back, but we are also to be looking forward. We're also to be looking forward. Forward to what? Forward to Friday. I mean, that's pretty much it for the world. That's what they look forward to. Forward to Friday. Forward to the weekend. Forward to the next vacation. Forward to retirement. That's it. For us, beloved, we're looking back to the cross, but we're also looking forward, forward to the return of our Lord. We are to live in the present, not only in light of God's past mercy, but also in light of the Lord's future return. Why? Well, in part, because it serves to motivate us to live holy lives here and now, which is exactly what God desires and commands of us as his children. Did you know that? Well, if you didn't know that, here it is. One, one passage. There's many, but here's one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, the Apostle Peter writes, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, when you were lost, when you were blind, when you were not saved, when you still were unregenerate, when you were not a new creation. Don't live in that way anymore, but just as He who called you is holy. What? So be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Leave that up for just a second. Be holy, because I am holy. I've said this many times. You know, people often, Christians especially, they're asking, what is the will of God for my life? Here it is, beloved. Huh? No need to wonder. Here it is, direct and clear. It is for you to put off that old life and its sinful lust and desires and to live for God, to live lives of holiness, okay? That's what it is. You want to put a verse to memory? Put this one to memory. One writer, one biblical scholar uh, on Romans refers to the section that we're about to look at in Romans 13, 11 through 14, refers to it as an appeal, an appeal to eschatology as an incentive to moral earnestness. An appeal to eschatology as an incentive to moral earnestness. Eschatology, what is that? Last things, literally that's what it means. Last things, it's a, it's a study of the end times or the events of the end, okay? And uh, moral earnestness... Earnestness is a seriousness, moral. You could, you could just say it this way. It's a seriousness about holiness. That's what this section is. How does eschatology, though, or the subject of end-time events, act as an incentive to live holy lives now? How does it do that? Well, we're going to talk about that today, but first, before we do that, let me ask you a question. Just think about this, seriously. How often, how often do you think about the Lord's return? Don't answer, just 
Think that through. How often do you reflect and meditate on it? The Lord's return. How often through the week do you think about Friday? Or your next vacation? Or your coming retirement? How often do you reflect and meditate on the Lord's return, beloved? I was thinking this through myself. uh, To our own detriment, to our own detriment, we can so easily get caught up in the happenings of this present life that we end up forgetting about the promised and certain coming of our Lord to our own detriment. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just think through this past week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, on any of those days. Did you stop and think seriously about the coming of the Lord? Beloved, my hope and prayer is that we would all keep the imminent return of our Lord ever in our minds and our hearts so that we might be moved, moved to truly honor the Lord with the remainder of our lives here on earth. Because it will do that. It will do that. Eschatology is a stimulant towards holiness. We're going to talk about that. Let's read the text. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Paul says this. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Closing out chapters 12 and 13 here, and all of the exhortations to us that are contained therein that we've spent the last months looking at closely and considering, Paul now kind of concludes this section before he steps into a a new subject with these words that we just read there. Paul writes, besides this, Besides what? Besides what I have just written to you. Besides that, in addition to that, the you there being Christians, you know the time. Besides everything I've just said, you know the time. time, What time are you talking about, Paul? Well, it is the hour. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Like Paul's talking to teenagers, you know. I can't remember how many times I actually said that in my life to my kids. You know, it's 11 o'clock. The hour's far past now for you to wake from your sleep, you slackered. What is Paul talking about, though? Well, that's a good question. Let Let me answer it. Paul is saying, in effect, that this present time that 
we, along with the Christians of the first century, find ourselves living in is not the time to be sleeping, but rather is a time to be fully awake and alert. But what is it about this present time that calls us as, calls us as Christians to be wide awake and ready to act? Well, to begin with, the time Paul refers to here is it's not a reference to time in general, but rather it is a reference to a very unique time or period of history. To be more specific, it is the time after the first coming of the Lord, but before his promised return. It is the time between his first advent and his Second Advent is another way to say it. It is a time in which the return of the Lord hovers over us. Hovers over us. That's a good way to think about it. Jesus is coming back. And he could come at any time, beloved. Bringing with him our future and final salvation. In fact, with each day that passes, that coming event draws closer. One writer says it this way, commenting on this. He says, the believer, that's us Christians, those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is not like a child looking for a clock to strike the hour because something is due to happen then. No. He is content to know that with every passing moment, the end is that much closer to realization. Another writer says this, On the certainty of the event, that is the coming of our Lord for his church and the end events, our faith is grounded by the uncertainty of the time. Our hope is stimulated and our watchfulness aroused. At least it should be if we're considering or meditating or thinking on these things and haven't let the present world completely drown out the more important coming event that we should be focused on. This event or the return of the Lord is exactly what Paul is speaking about in the latter part of verse 11 of our text. Look back at it. Paul says there, besides this, you know the time. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And here it is. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's an interesting way of putting it, putting it that our salvation is nearer to us now, and I don't want you to be confused about this, does not mean that we who have believed and trusted in Christ are not currently saved. Okay, so Paul's not saying, hey, it's a coming. Your salvation is a coming. You, right now, uh, you're out, you know, but it's almost here. That's not what he's talking about. Um, what it means is that our salvation has a future and final phase, okay? Our salvation has a future and final phase, and that is, and you might remember this word from our previous studies in Romans, our glorification, our glorification. Do you remember that? Our glorification. Where, when our Lord returns for us, we will 
finally and fully be delivered from all the awful effects of sin and death. Paul refers to this future salvation. I'll remind you, I'll show it to you. We've looked at it before in Romans 8. Flip back there, if you would, in your Bibles. Romans 8, just a little bit to the left. Uh, Beginning in uh, verse 18. I want you to read it with me, just see it there. Paul referring to this great time, this, this glorification of the saints of God. He says this in verse 18, For I consider first that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This future redemption of our bodies will occur for the church when the Lord comes again and what is commonly referred to as the rapture or the catching away of the church. And for your own studies, you can look up passages such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. But maybe you're wondering how the culmination of our salvation at the return of Christ or how the Lord's future return for His church, an event which could occur at any moment. At any moment, beloved. We're not waiting for something to happen. It could happen. An event that is is really hanging over us. How would that become a motive then for God's people to live holy in the present? But before I answer that, I want to point out that based on our text, we can see clearly, clearly that it is a motivation for holy living. Look back at it again, beginning in verse 12. Let me read it to you again. Starting in verse 12, Romans 13, Paul says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Another translation says, The night has advanced toward dawn. The day is near. So then, based on that, another translation says, therefore, because of that, what, Paul? Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see that? There's motivation based on eschatology to live holy 
lies. So we can see that it's clear, but what Paul doesn't specifically spell out here is why it's a motivation. Why it's a motivation. We know it is, but why? Let me illustrate this another way. You might hear a child in a family say, listen uh, to his siblings, dad is coming back and can show up at any time, so we better clean up our rooms right now. Okay, so in that example I just gave you, dad's imminent return is clearly a motivation for the kids to get busy, to wake up out of their slumber, and clean up their messy rooms, okay? We know that, right? But in that example, I, you don't really know why that is the case, why they're motivated to do that. We could guess. There might be many reasons, right? Because dad threatened their lives that if he comes home one more time and their rooms are a mess, they will pay the price, you know, whatever. Or maybe there was a reward if I come home and and these rooms are straightened up like they're supposed to be, like I keep telling you to do, I will take you out for ice cream. Or, or maybe it's because the children uh, love to see their dad smile when he comes through the door, and that is their greatest desire for their lives. And so they know that a, a clean house, an orderly house, brings delight to their father's soul and... They know he could come at any time, and they see that the room has become a mess again, as it does, and so let's do this. Let's do it now. We, we dare not want him to walk through the door and, and have his smile turn to a frown as he looks upon the mess that we have left. I, you, know, I, you know, there are a lot, many reasons, right? But we don't know exactly. All we know is there is a motivation here connected to the imminent return of their father. So... Here are two reasons why the Lord's two, two reasons why the Lord's imminent return is for us a motivation to pursue holiness right now. Right now. First of all, there is the matter of the judgment. The matter of the judgment that immediately follows the rapture of the church or the Lord's appearing. This judgment, if you will, is the first order of business for the glorified church. The first order of business for the glorified church. Someone might be saying, wait a minute, Pastor Jeremy, I didn't think uh, we would face a judgment of any sort because we're Christians. (laughs) Okay, listen carefully. Because if this is new to you, wow, that might be shocking. Hopefully it's not new to you, but it could be. Listen As believers, we are forgiven of all of our sins through Christ. Amen? And because of that, because of that, we will never face or participate in the judgment of the great white throne. The great white throne. If you want to read about that judgment, you can find it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. The great white throne judgment. That judgment is where unbelievers, those who've rejected Jesus Christ, will have their lives evaluated against the standard of God's perfect holiness, and consequently, they will be found wanting. And because they have no Savior to rescue them, they will be cast for eternity 
into the lake of fire. That is the great white throne judgment. That as believers in Jesus Christ, we will not undergo because we have a Savior. But even though we will not come under that judgment, newsflash, maybe for some, we will be judged. We will be judged for the way in which we have lived our Christian lives. We will give an account to God for what we did or didn't do with the life He gave us or how faithful we were to Him and His Word. Let your eyes glance ahead just in the same book that we're in. It's just shortly after this that Paul says in, look at chapter 14, just go ahead, look at the uh, latter half of verse 10. Paul says there, for we will what? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's talking about Christians. He's talking to Christians. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, each of us, every single Christian will give an account of himself to God. In another of Paul's letter, he also speaks of this judgment of believers writing there, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verses 6 through 10, Paul says, We know that while we are, for a little bit of context, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, either way, we make it our aim to please him. Why, Paul? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or, and the ESV says evil, a better translation would be bad, whether good or bad. Now listen, the purpose of this judgment is not to determine our destiny. Let me say that again. The purpose of this judgment is not to determine our destiny. Jesus determines destiny. If you know Jesus Christ, your destiny will be with him. If you reject Jesus Christ, your destiny will be apart from him forever in the lake of fire. Okay? Are you with me? So that's not what this judgment is about, but rather determines eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. However, not all evaluations at this judgment will be comforting for Christians, for we will suffer loss for those things that are worthless or done from self-glorifying motives rather than the Lord, for the purpose of glorifying and honoring the Lord. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Let me read that to you. Paul says, Therefore no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's the foundation, but listen, now if anyone builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that day when we are judged for these things, we'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives the fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. But only as through fire. When the Lord returns to bring final salvation to his church, and every glorified believer has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's what's going to occur. And remember, remember what Paul is saying the night is far gone, and the day of his return is near. So, because of that, just like Paul, we are to make it our aim, our goal, our desire to be living lives right now that are pleasing to our Lord. In order to truly do that, we necessarily must be repenting of our sin and pursuing holiness. Do you understand that? Now, let me, you know, I was thinking about this, the pursuit of rewards. You know, in, in our society, we pursue rewards for many different reasons, and some of them may not be good, selfish, okay? The pursuit of these rewards should be motivated by the fact that, think about what the rewards are for. They're for lives lived honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, loving him, serving him, sacrificing for him, living holy and pleasing lives to the Lord. That's what the rewards are offered for. Those are the ones that survive this judgment. Okay? You with me? So should I not ought to want to pursue those rewards? Huh? Right? Because in pursuing them, I'm living a life that honors the Lord, that brings him pleasure, that makes him smile. Huh? I mean, if someone said to me, hey, listen, I don't really, that whole reward thing, listen, I'm just happy to get in. What? Then you must misunderstand what's, what we're talking about here. What do you mean you're just happy to get in? Do you not want to honor the Lord with your life? Is not in the deepest parts of your heart, is not your desire to please him? the one who has redeemed you and saved you? Beloved, listen, if that is not there or anywhere, if you don't see that in your life, there's no desire to want to please him, then I would question seriously the validity of your profession of faith. Seriously. The Christian is a new creation. He has been changed. Inside of him dwells the Holy Spirit. His heart is is new now. His, his affections are new. It doesn't mean he still doesn't struggle with the old man and sin in this world and the flesh and the devil. Yes, of course, but there's something different about him or her. They desire, and things get in the way of it, I get that, but deep down they desire to want to please the Lord. Okay? And if that's not there, then there's no reason to think anything's really happened. You're still the old person. You haven't been transformed. You haven't been saved. I mean, it's kind of like that, 
that illustration I was giving earlier where, yeah, the kids actually, they desire to see their father happy and pleased with them. They want to hear, well done, good little children. Well done. Huh? See, I, I was thinking about this. You know, is that, do, is that what's going on in me, right? Is that the desire of my heart that I really want to hear that? Yeah. I sin, I, I mess that up, but what, pers- what causes me to move away from that and move towards God? I desire above all to want to hear my Lord say, well done, well done. I want to please him, not so I can go, yeah, that's right, look at me, I'm so awesome. Look at him saying well done, because I, I know, I know that when he says well done, it's only because of the work of grace, his work of grace in my life. But I worked that out. I, I allowed him to work through me and in me. I allowed him to have his way with me. Concerning living for the eternity and living for the future, and Chris, that's just a great section he read out of that devotional book. There's... Uh, a phrase that Christians uh, often repeat, uh, but they probably don't even know where it came from, and it goes like this, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You ever heard that? If you haven't, it's, it's pretty common in the Christian community. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. It was a poem written by a, a missionary, He was in a poem written by a missionary from the 19th century. I'm going to read the poem to you, just for you to meditate on and just thinking about eternity and and how it should have an impact on how you live now. And if it's not having that impact, I wonder, are you the Lord's? Are you the Lord's? It's possible you are. You've just become seriously distracted, seriously caught up in the affairs of this world that seek to pull you into its mess and its temporariness and its filthiness and all that goes along with it. He says this, Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one Soon with its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. 
Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true whate'er the strife. Pleasing thee in my daily life. If only one life. T'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Remember the judgment, beloved. Remember the judgment. The other way the imminent return of Christ becomes a motive for holy living is found in 1 John chapter 3. We considered this before when we went through this book. I wanted to remind you because it was appropriate to this section. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says this. Uh, yes, John, sorry. Apostle John says this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we sang about this earlier, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And here it is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John is saying, whether the world properly recognizes us or not doesn't matter. Whether they can see the fact that we are God's children, that's, that's not the issue, because all that that means is not appearing yet, all that that means. So, but we are right now, we're not waiting to be, we are right now God's children. And yet, all that is in store for the child of God has not yet become a present reality, okay? Right? Our salvation is playing itself out. There is a future salvation that is coming, the culmination of our salvation. For in the future, when Jesus Christ appears, when we see him at his appearing, we shall be just like him. We shall become like Jesus. We shall be completely transformed into his likeness. We shall be glorified. Now, the child of God who hopes in Jesus' return and the reality of what that return will mean for them, that they will be made like him when he appears, perfectly holy and righteous, that hopeful child of God consequently makes it their aim in life to be morally pure in the present. That's what they do. Perfectly, no, but that is the direction of their life. If it is not, again, let me say it again, there's no reason for them to have any assurance that they are a child of God. No reason. They are to keep themselves from sin. That's what the child of God will do in light of the reality of that day. They will strive to be like Christ, to purify themselves as he is pure. 
So let me put it this way. Those who have the certain hope of being completely like Christ one day, and that day is near, the night is far gone, they will work hard to progressively be like Christ today. Even if they cannot achieve perfection now. The child of God knows that perfection will not come until Jesus appears, but they long for that perfection. That's what you're longing for. Huh? I'm longing to see my Savior and be made like Him. If you're longing like that, that will affect your life now. You get me? You long for that perfection, for that complete righteousness and holiness, and therefore you make it your passion, your aim, your goal to be like Him now, resulting in an ongoing pursuit of holiness and a transformed life, a life increasingly marked by righteousness and moral purity. One writer says this concerning that passage, I can't have a passionate longing to be like Christ in the life to come without it affecting the life I live here. You get me? You get it? You understand? It's impossible. Another says this, the hope of being like Christ in the end should inspire Christ-like behavior even now. Even now. You want to know why the imminent return of our Lord motivates you to put off sin and unrighteousness and to pursue Christ, to make no provision for the flesh, but to put on the Lord Jesus? Here it is. It's this hope, this this purifying hope. It's it's the judgment to come. It's a desire deep down to, to want to meet him and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So Christian brothers and sisters, this is no time for inactivity. Spiritually speaking, we need to get up and get with it. Huh? The hour has come for us to wake from our sleep. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. One writer says this, the believer must not be lulled to sleep by indulgence and pleasure or be influenced by the the specious words of those who suggest that the Lord delays his coming or may not return at all. Specious, that just means uh, it appears to be true, but it's false. He's not coming. You Christians and all your crazy talk. Do as you please. Live for the day. Live for the moment. What are they trying to do? Remove eternity from you. Take it out of your mind. Let's not talk about the Lord's return at all. Don't think about that. That's nonsense. He is coming, and he's not coming someday, 2025. His return is imminent. He could come at any moment. The night is far gone, beloved. He's come once. We are living in the time now before his second coming, which could occur at any time. Wake up! Huh? Hold on a second. I'm going to come over here. I'm going to grab this. I was going to read it next week. but You know, I've several times now I've said, hey, listen, you know, I've made that. I've said to you, 
If these things aren't evident in your life, we went through this heavy when we went through 1 John, you might remember. If these things aren't true of your life, no reason to have any assurance of your salvation. I only say that because, and I say it regularly, because it appears to me that there are many in the church, meaning they gather, and I would say there are some here certainly, they gather they say they're Christian. They talk Christianese. They might even have big, gigantic Bibles. But they know not the Lord Jesus Christ. Their lives are unchanged. They live in sin and they wallow in it. They enjoy it. They don't repent of it. They aren't loathed by it. They're not looking for His return. They're living for the moment. They are as much as like the world is than as the world is. Why in the world would they think that they're Christians? That's all serious now, so let me give a little bit of lightheartedness, all right? But I want you to be thinking about these things. Allie read this thing to me. She saw it on the, whatever, Facebook or Internet or something. It's a story. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read you the story. It's a joke but then I'm going to tell you something else, okay? So it goes like this. The light turned yellow just in front of him. He did the right thing and stopped at the crosswalk, even though he could have beaten the red light by accelerating through the intersection. The tailgating woman behind him was furious and honked her horn, screaming in frustration as she missed her chance to get through the intersection. (laughs) As she was still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked up to the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple hours, a a policeman approached the cell and, and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing the horn, giving the guy in front of you the finger and cursing at him. And I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker and the choose life license plate holder and the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assume you had stolen the car. You know why that's funny? Yeah, because it's too true. My wife read that in her workplace, and the ladies there are nice ladies, but not followers of Jesus Christ. They all said the same thing. That is so true. Huh? That's what the world thinks of Christianity, because there's so many people walking around who aren't Christians, but professing to be. Beloved, we're going to talk about the, uh, the imperatives the next week, about what we are to do in light of the Lord's return, okay? But uh, let me say this to you if you're here and, and you're not sure if you're a believer or if maybe right now the Holy Spirit is working to convict you of that very fact that you are not. You profess to be. Maybe you've professed to be for some time, but you know, you know, you're not. It's an act, the whole thing. You're a make-believer. Let me, let me say this to you, that the, 
The scriptures talk about the return of the Lord, and, and we've talked about that. But they also say this, that when the Lord Jesus comes and he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I hope you will hear that, unbeliever. I hope you will hear that. And that would cause you to flee for the first time, for real, to the cross of Jesus Christ and there find mercy and be saved from the wrath that is to come. I pray you do that right now. Right now. For the night is far gone. And the day is near. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the promises that we find in it, Lord. I, I thank you for how it moves us and motivates us if we will hear it and meditate on it and, and, and internalize it, Lord. How it moves us to, to give our lives to you fully, to to be living sacrifices to pursue holiness with, with all that we are and in the strength of the Spirit, Father. Help us as Christians. We, we get so intoxicated by all the things of this world. Foolishness, Lord. Foolishness, we confess. Help us. Help us to be disciplined, to continually keep before our minds and our hearts that you, Lord, you are coming again for your church. And may that eminent return that hangs over us right now, this, this is the period of history with, in which we live, may it move us to get up out of bed, to be fully awake and active in serving you and living for you, Father, living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Work in us, Father. Let, let your, may, your, may your word do its work. And, and Lord, I pray also for those that are here and they profess faith, but they, they're not redeemed. They're not saved. They say they're Christian because it's easy to say. It's easy. Especially in a society where they don't undergo the threat of death for their profession. It's easy. They're just kind of going along, doing the Christian thing, but... They don't know you, Father. May you convict them now. And may you cause them to turn from that and to turn to you, to stop lying, lying to themselves, lying to everyone else, because ultimately they're not lying to you, God. You know the truth. Father, work in their hearts. May you break that stubbornness or unwillingness to truly come to you and cast themselves upon you as undeserving sinners and may they cry out for your mercy and find it in the cross of Jesus Christ and truly be saved, transformed and changed from within. Father, we ask all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.